Please turn in your Bibles with me to this morning's text, which is Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law shall no one be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we ourselves were found to be sinners, is Christ then an agent of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again those things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. You remember last week now that uh, when Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews in Antioch cut off table fellowship from the Gentile Christians because they weren't keeping the dietary laws, Paul rebuked Peter to his face and said that that amounts to compelling the Gentile believers to become Jews or to keep the dietary laws in order to be right with God and fully accepted in the church. And that is neither in sync with the gospel, nor is it consistent with your own deeply held principles, Peter. Now, verses 15 to 16 this week continues that argument with Peter a step further. In a nutshell, what Paul does in verses 15 and 16 is show Peter how, in fact, he and Peter are unified both theologically and experientially in faith. And therefore, it's inconsistent of Peter to act in a way that both he and Paul would condemn as foisting a legalism onto the new Gentile believers in Antioch. Let's look at it and see how they are unified theologically and experientially. We ourselves, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet who know, underline that word know, 
that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now stop there. That word know, we know, you and I know, Peter, that works are not the way to get right with God. That's where I get the idea that they are unified theologically. They have the, the same theology of justification. Peter, we know, we're agreed, right? So stop acting as though the Gentiles have to work for God in order to be accepted by God and by the church. Now, before we go to the second half of that text right there, let me point out a minor thing that's going to become major in verse 17, namely the meaning of the word sinners in verse 15. I think the word sinners in verse 15 has a limited meaning when it says uh, we are Jews by nature, not Gentile sinners. If you've got a new international, in fact, it's in quotes. That's good. I think that's right. Paul does not mean that we're Jews and therefore not sinners. You're Gentiles and therefore sinners. As, as though there's no sin involved in your life if you're a Jew. I think what Paul means, rather, is that he and Peter are kosher Jews. Grew up keeping the dietary laws and abiding by all the legal restrictions. Whereas the Gentiles at Antioch, they're not circumcised and they don't keep the dietary laws. And therefore, automatically, they're in a class whom the Judaizers and the Pharisees call sinners. Quite apart from whether that's right or wrong to live that way. So sinners in verse 15 doesn't necessarily have wrongdoing attached to it. Depends on what your perspective is. It might simply mean you're involved in not keeping the dietary laws and therefore you break the law and therefore you're a, a sinner from the perspective of the Pharisees. Paul may not share that perspective. That's what's going to be important to keep in mind as we read on through the text. What he means, basically, I think in verse 15 is... Peter, you and I were brought up as kosher, law-abiding Jews. We don't commit constant, flagrant breaches of the ceremonial laws. Gentiles, like those who live here in Antioch, however, they break them every day. Now, we continue on to the next part of the verse, and he says, Nevertheless, or even we, have believed. In Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Here's where I get the idea that they are not only unified theologically in what they think about justification. They are also, also unified experientially. We, you and I Peter, we believed, didn't we? We've trusted Christ. We're not leaning anymore on works of the law in order to be right with God. By works of law shall no flesh be justified. We're not hoping in ourselves. There's no basis of justification in us. Christ has taken it out of our hands. He killed sin on the cross. That's the only way to get right with God. Right, Peter? We believe that, don't we? You see how he's arguing, how he's establishing unity with Peter here? 
And therefore, Peter, since we have such a glorious common theology of justification and such a glorious common experience of faith, Peter, Peter, don't compel the Gentile believers to act as though this theology weren't true and our experience were false. I think that's what's happening in verses 15 and 16. Now, verse 17, we hear, I think, an echo of a criticism that the people from James or the Judaizers brought against Paul and I think also against Peter while he was eating with the Gentile Christians. The criticism goes like this. Paul, when you encourage Jewish people to neglect the sacred statutes of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, you make Christ an agent of sin. Right, Paul? And his answer is verse 17. Even if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we ourselves were found to be sinners, is Christ then an agent of sin? Certainly not. Now, it's very important to see what Paul admits and what he denies in verse 17. He admits two things and he denies one thing vehemently. First of all, he admits that he and Peter and the other Jewish Christians there in Antioch are in fact seeking justification, not in works of law, but through faith in Christ. And the second thing he's admitting Here's where this word sinners is going to become real important. He is admitting that in doing that, they become sinners. But what does that mean? I think he means that when a Jew trusts in Christ, he experiences a freedom from the ceremonial laws and a freedom from the law as a way of justification And he can now, in the name of love and freedom, eat with Gentile Christians and become therein sinners in the eyes of the Judaizers. See, are you with me? He's admitting that, in fact, he becomes a sinner on their basis. He accepts that term. Yes, we have been found to be sinners, Gentile sinners. But no, now he denies emphatically that Christ is thereby made an agent of sin. Why? Because it isn't sin to be a sinner in that sense. You with me now? had this out in a Bible study yesterday and they said, you better work on that one to make that clear. It is not sin to be a sinner in the sense that it's being used in verse 15 and 17. That is, it's not sin. Christ did not make us sinners when he freed us from the ceremonial laws so that we could now walk in love and eat with Gentile brothers and sisters. And Christ did not make us an agent of sin 
when he freed us for God and for love. The people from James may call us sinners. All right. But don't make Christ thereby an agent of sin. So Paul's answer to the criticism is basically, yes, Christ has freed us to neglect the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And not to even use any of the Old Testament as a way of justification. But no, Christ is not thereby made an agent of sin. All right, now, verses 18 to 20 give the basis, the argument, the support for those assertions. So let's look at these verses. He begins in verse 18 like this. For if I build up again the things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. What had Paul torn down in the preceding verses? What had he torn, what, what had he torn down that was in, in danger of being re-erected at Antioch? Isn't it clear that he is seeking, or that in seeking to be justified by faith, he has torn down the law as a way of justification? But now, mind you, Paul is not saying that he is tearing down the Mosaic law as Moses preached it. He is tearing down the Mosaic law as the Pharisees understood it and the Judaizers pressed it on the Gentiles. And there's a big difference between those two. Let me try to illustrate the difference with a picture that has been a real help to me. When God gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament, it was like a railroad track that he lay down in the wilderness, that is the path of righteousness. Believers are in a a car sitting on the railroad track. The engine that pulls this car is the grace of God or the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll never get along the track of obedience to salvation if the engine of grace and the Holy Spirit is not pulling. And the coupling that holds us to the engine, unites us to the power, is the coupling of what? Faith. But that's not a very attractive view of salvation to proud human beings. Because it says God's got to do it all. We just sit there in the first aid car with broken legs. It's not a very complimentary view of salvation. It is salvation by grace, through faith, along the track of obedience. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. But it's not attractive. It's not complimentary to human beings that we need such a way of salvation. And therefore, the Pharisees and the Judaizers and many people in the church today reject it. And here's what they do. With their own unaided strength, they take that railroad, rails, nails, ties and all, and lift it like this. And lean it against the door of heaven and turn it into a ladder. 
on which they will now demonstrate to God, to the world, their moral fitness to climb the ladder of morality into the favor of God Almighty. And therein is the essence of legalism. Turning a railroad track of grace into a ladder of law and legalism. Making the law into a long list of steps that you must climb in your strength to get into God's court and favor. You know, while the, while the track is on the ground, and we're just cruising over it, highballing it to heaven by the grace of God, you can pull out a few ties of ceremonial laws, and the train just will make a bit of difference. You set that thing on end and start pulling out ties, the Judaizers see what's happening. And it's an attack on their system. We're not going to be able to get to heaven if you start pulling out ties, Paul. The ladder of legalism, of law, is what Paul tore down. The legalistic misuse of the law by the Judaizers. So verse 18 says... If I build up again, if I erect this ladder again, I prove myself a transgressor. This is amazing. See what this means? You transgress the law when you erect the law and try to keep the law as a ladder Demonstrating your moral fitness to get into God's favor. So the connection between verses 17 and 18 is this. When Christ leads us to trust in him for justification, instead of trusting in our own legal efforts to climb this ladder, he is not an agent for sin, for what really makes a person a sinner, that is, a transgressor, is when they prostitute the law of God by turning it from a railroad track into a ladder. Therein, you become the worst possible transgressor. The transgression of all human nature is the presumption that you can climb your way on the ladder of law into heaven. And most Americans think that you can do just that. Now verse 19 gives support for the point of verse 18. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. If you must die to law in order to have a close relation to God, is it not clear that to erect the law will make you a transgressor against God? That's the connection between verses 19 and 18. Verse 19 makes the amazing point 
that as long as you are trying to earn your way into God's favor, he's getting farther and farther away from you. It's the irony of legalism. The irony of religion outside grace is that the harder we pursue him on the ladder, the higher he flees out of our reach. There are two possibilities in religion. Any religion, just two possibilities. You can either focus on God's demand and your ability and the ladder of law by which you climb. Or you can focus on God's demand and your inability and the free gift of justification through faith. Those are the only two possibilities in religion, ultimately. Paul had learned, you see that little phrase, through law, I died to law. Paul had learned from long experience with the law that in order to get close to God, in order to really live with and for God, legalism and the old Paul had to die. Just had to die. Now verse 20 spells out for us the experience of death to law and life to God. When I was a junior in college, I got mono and had to be in quarantine for about well, several weeks in the health center. And I can remember the first time Chaplain Welch came to visit me. And uh, we talked for a while. And then as he walked out, he opened the door and he turned and he said, John, do you have a verse a life verse. And I said, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's still my verse. And you know what happened at the end of the baptism this morning? Heather uh, Suka came and handed me this calligraphy of Galatians 2.20. And she had done it before she even heard me say that in the first service. And uh, that's going to go on my wall and uh, it's going to sew a lot of pieces of my life together. I love this verse. I wish I had, I almost decided to preach another separate sermon on it, but here goes five minutes worth. And then we'll be done. What does it mean to be crucified with Jesus? I think it means two things. First of all, it means that the gruesome death of the all-glorious, innocent, loving Son of God is the most radical indictment of my hopeless condition imaginable. It's an indictment. It's like, thou shalt die. You are so wicked. It is, the cross to me, is like an open display before the whole world of John Piper's hellish condition. And the second thing it means is this. If I believe that, if I see it, and believe it, 
then my proud self, which loves to display its power by climbing ladders of morality and intellect and beauty and daring, dies. Self-reliance, self-confidence, self-exaltation, self-direction cannot live at the foot of the cross. Can they? Didn't your old self-reliant ego die there? But what remains then? What remains of us? Two things. Christ lives in me. Christ remains in us. He rose from the dead. He poured himself out in the Holy Spirit and he dwells within you now. Um, Colossians 1.27 says, The mystery of the gospel is Christ, where? In you, the hope of glory. That's conversion. Oh, listen to this now, because this is, this is absolutely crucial that you get this straight. Conversion. Or becoming a Christian does not mean deciding in your head to believe the doctrines of the Bible. Satan believes every doctrine in the Bible with his head. Becoming a Christian means death. A Christian is a person who has died with Christ whose stiff neck has been broken, whose brazen forehead has been smashed, whose stony heart has been ground to smithereens, and whose pride has been slain, and who has been utterly mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it says one more thing. The life I now live in the flesh, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a new I. I do live. I'm alive. But who is it? Who is this new I? This new Christian. It's the eye that looks always away from itself, away from self-reliance, away from self-confidence, away from self-exaltation, away from self-direction, holy to Christ. Stakes everything on Christ, loves Christ, rests on Christ lives by faith in Christ, when you get up in the morning, from the moment you are awake to the moment you fall asleep at night, you know what the new I does? The new I despairs of self. And the new I is alive to Christ and depends like a little child on Christ for protection, for motivation, for encouragement, 
for forgiveness and for enablement to do all that we have to do. And I tell you, that is the most glorious way to live imaginable. Just sitting in the boxcar with your broken leg up and your arm in a sling with almighty God pulling you down the track of obedience. So in conclusion, the Judaizers say that Paul makes Christ an agent of sin. They say he makes Christ an agent of sin. Paul comes back to them in verse 21, I think, and says something like this. You Judaizers, you're really concerned about the honor of Christ, aren't you? Real concerned about the honor of Christ. You know what you make out of the cross of Christ? With your legalism and your ladder? Nothing. He died in vain. All of his pain, all of his blood, for nothing. You climb in your ladder on your own. And I tell you, Judaizers, I take my stand beneath the cross. I do not nullify the grace of God. 